Chapter Four, Part Eleven of the Works of Robert G. Ingersoll, Volume Ten, Ingersoll's Closing Address to the Jury in the Second Star Root Trial. Part Eleven of Twenty Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by William Jones. Part Eleven. The next point to which I call your attention is the withdrawal of the plea of not guilty by Mr. Rodell. You probably remember the occurrence. I will read to you what he said upon that occasion. I find it on page 2202. After mature reflection and a full consideration of the whole subject, I have determined to abandon any further defense of myself in this case and put myself at the mercy of the court and the government. And if desired to do so by the counsel for the government, to testify to all my knowledge of any facts with reference to any of the defendants either against or for them, myself included. Therefore, I now, in person, ask leave to withdraw my plea of not guilty, heretofore interposed, and enter my plea of guilty, and in so doing, put myself upon the mercy of the court. I feel this to be a duty I owe to myself, my family, and to truth. I have arrived at this fixed determination upon my own reflection and responsibilities, and without any previous consultation with my counsel, who, I believe, would not have advised me to this course, and whom I now relieve from all and any responsibility for the course I have adopted. Now, gentlemen, is it not wonderful that if Mr. Burdell was about to tell the truth as a witness in this case, he could not even withdraw his plea of not guilty without misstating the facts? Is it not wonderful that he felt called upon at that time to tell several falsehoods? He says that he took this step upon his own responsibility. He says that he did it without the advice of his counsel. He tells you that he believes if he had asked his counsel, his counsel would have been opposed to it. He says he is willing to be a witness for the government if the government desires it, leaving you to infer that at that time no arrangement had been made for him to be a witness, that it was all in the regions of uncertainty, that he had withdrawn into the recesses of his own mind, and consulting with himself, and nobody else had made up his mind to throw himself upon the mercy of the government and the court, and took that step without even allowing his counsel to know what he was about to do. But he speaks further on the subject. I read from page 2523. I was then examining him. Question. How did you come to do it? Answer. I finally made up my mind to what I would do. I talked it over the evening before with my counsel. He so states under oath, and yet when he stood up before this court and withdrew his plea of not guilty, he said he acted without the knowledge of his counsel. I read this to show you 
that the statement he made to the court at the time he withdrew his plea was absolutely false. What next? I will go on a little further. The same man, Rodell, after he had made up his mind to go over to the government, after he had made his mind to swear away, if it was within his power, the liberty of S. W. Dorsey, admits on page 2525 that he endeavored to get $5,000 from Mr. Dorsey. On page 2589, Mr. Rodell swears positively that he did not know that he was to be used as a witness for the government until he was called into court to take the stand. Let us look at the evidence of Mr. Bliss on page 2590. I will read you what he said. Mr. Bliss, Your Honor, we propose to show, in substance, that this witness, for reasons with which we have nothing to do, connected with his own views of his own safety, from an early period, was desirous of being accepted by the government as a witness. That the counsel in the case refused to communicate with him or to have anything to do with him until, in the presence of his own counsel, he was brought to Mr. Merrick's office, and there the whole thing was explained. And that then, for the first time, the government accepted his willingness to be a witness and they did it under the circumstances which held out to him no inducement and which involved no training or anything of the kind by anybody representing the prosecution. Now let us go to the next step. I want to be perfectly fair. On page 2591, Mr. Merrick asked Mr. Rodell this question. Question. When did you first learn that you would be put on the stand after pleading guilty? Answer. It was the day before my plea was made in court. Yet when he rose to withdraw the plea, he expressed his willingness to go upon the stand for the government, leaving you to infer that no arrangement had been made, and he afterwards finally swore that he did not know that he was to be called until he was called. These things, gentlemen, you must remember. On page 2515, Burdell swears that on the Sunday after he got out of jail, he proposed to Mr. Lilly to have Lilly act for him, and authorized Lilly to say to the government that if the government would accept him, he would go on the stand and rebut Vail. He told him that he had in his possession a letter or two of Mr. Vail's. Burdell tells you that he made this proposition on the 16th or 17th of September, 1882, which was after he made the affidavit of June, 1881. On the same page, he said it was just after Vail went off the stand. That is my recollection. In the last trial, Vail testified on the 4th of August, 1882, so about that time, Rodell, according to his testimony, went to Lilly and made a proposition to sell out then. When he made the affidavit of July 13, 1882, the trial was then in progress. The very next month, August, while the trial was still going on, 
that same man, having made the affidavit of July 13, 1882, went to his attorney, Mr. Lilly, and authorized him to say to the government that Mr. Burdell would take the stand to swear against Mr. Vail. Remember another thing, gentlemen. The only thing he offered to do then to ensure his own safety was to swear against Vail. He did not offer to swear against Dorsey. He did not authorize Mr. Lilly to tell the government about the pencil memorandum and the tabular statement and his letter to Bosler and Dorsey's letter to Bosler and the Chico letter. Not a word. He simply went and wanted to sell some letters he had that had been written by Vail. Why did he make that offer? Because it was all he had. On page 2517, he says that nothing was said about pardon, but he says that Lily told him that he thought he could get him off. Well, what does that mean? That means pardon. On page 2518, he swears that he saw Woodward in November in Hartford, and Woodward and he wrote out the statement, covering, I believe, about 70 pages of legal cap. Then Mr. Burdell, on page 2519, swears that he never made an affidavit after that. Then he admits on the same page that the day before he came into court, he met Mr. Woodward and made another affidavit. That was supplementary to the first. In the meantime, he found some new papers. So we find, according to his testimony, these affidavits. On page 2521, we find that he made an affidavit in June 1881. Remember, gentlemen, that he swore to that affidavit three or four times. He made another affidavit in July 1882, and another in September and November of the same year, and another in February 1883. And yet he swears that he was not to have immunity. Now, gentlemen, one point more about his plea of guilty. After having withdrawn his plea of not guilty, after rising in court and solemnly saying that he was guilty, and that he was guilty as charged in the indictment, which says that Burdell conspired with Brady and Vale and Minor and John W. Dorsey and S. W. Dorsey and Turner, that they all conspired and that all the false affidavits and false petitions and false everything else mentioned in the indictment were made for the common benefit of all. Then, on page 2570, he solemnly swears that he never entered into any conspiracy or agreement with the defendants mentioned in the indictment, or any of them for the purpose of defrauding the government. When I asked him, with whom did you conspire, when did you conspire, and what was the conspiracy? He could not tell. And yet he had stood up in court, and admitted that he was guilty, and then on oath denied it? Did he not swear himself that after the division was made in the roots, Stephen W. Dorsey had not the interest of a cent in any route that went to Vale or Minor? Did he not also swear that Vale and Minor had not the interest of one cent 
in any route that went to stephen w dorsey did he not swear that they were not mutually interested and yet did he not stand up in court and by a plea of guilty say that they were not only mutually interested but he was one of the interested parties himself it seems impossible for that man to tell the truth on any subject whatever on page twenty five seventy one he swears that he never made any agreement with vail to defraud the united states he stood up in court and admitted that he had he swore that he never made any agreement with john w dorsey he admitted that he had he swore that he never made any agreement with s w dorsey and yet stood up in court and admitted that he had now let us see whether he expected immunity he swears that he was taken to mr merrick's office by mr woodward and his counsel what mr merrick told him we find on page twenty five ninety question and did i not say that under the circumstances the government would have nothing to do with you unless you pleaded guilty answer you did question and that if you pleaded guilty you had nothing to trust to but the mercy of the government and the court answer that is what you did sir exactly now on page twenty five twenty three question was it not arranged that mr woodward was to come to your house and then take you to one of the attorneys for the prosecution for the purpose of arranging the terms and conditions upon which you were to take the stand answer it was not in another place he swears that it was that the arrangement was carried out the next point i wish to make if the court please is that whenever what is called an accomplice or an informer turns what is called state's evidence and whenever he is permitted by the court to be sworn as a witness in a case there is then upon the part of the government an implied promise that if he tells the truth he shall not be punished i read from the whiskey cases nine auto page five ninety five mr justice clifford delivers the opinion of the court courts of justice everywhere agree that the established usage is that an accomplice duly admitted as a witness in a criminal prosecution against his associates in guilt if he testifies fully and fairly will not be prosecuted for the same offense and some of the decided cases and standard text writers give very satisfactory explanations of the origin and scope of the usage in its ordinary application in actual practice the court what point are you now making to the court mr ingersoll i am making this point it appears from the evidence that mr wilshire the attorney of mr Rurdell, told him at the time he was making up his mind whether he would go to the government or not about the whiskey cases i make the point that when an accomplice turns state's evidence the state cannot prosecute him after that if he testifies fully and fairly that the usage is immemorial and that there is not an exception in the records of all the cases in the books consequently that when mr merrick told him 
you must look simply to the government and to the court and you will have just exactly what the law gives you and no more his remarks meant that the law gave him perfect immunity provided he went upon the stand and swore truthfully the court you have demonstrated as far as you've been able to that he has not sworn truthfully mr ingleshall he has not he has not and if the government will act fairly with him he will get no immunity when he went to the government he understood the law to be that if he swore fully and fairly or if he swore in such a way that they could not prove that he did not swear fully and fairly he was to have immunity he understood that the more he swore against the defendants the better was his chance for immunity he knew that the government would never complain of any lie he swore against the defendants now the next question is what is the law of accomplices or informers there was a remark made by mr bliss in his speech that they had plenty of evidence in this case without the testimony of mr walsh or mr moore or mr verdell plenty of evidence without the testimony of mr verdell if that had been so then the government had no right to put mr verdell on the stand there is but one excuse for using the testimony of a man who pleads guilty and that is without his testimony a conviction cannot in all probability be obtained and upon that point i refer to ten pickering four seventy eight and nine cowan seven eleven and not only upon that point but upon the point i made at first that whenever you put such a man upon the stand that of itself amounts to a promise of absolute immunity the object of admitting the evidence of accomplices is in order to effect the discovery and punishment of crimes which cannot be proved against the offenders without the aid of an accomplice's testimony in order to prevent this entire failure of justice recourse is had to the evidence of accomplices one phillips on evidence one o seven if therefore there be sufficient evidence to convict without his testimony the court will refuse to admit him as a witness roscoe's criminal evidence one twenty seven neither do i believe that mr burdell had a right to go upon the stand until his case was finally disposed of precisely the same language is used by wharton on criminal evidence four thirty nine an accomplice is used by the government because his evidence is necessary to a conviction that is the opinion of mr justice mclean in four mclean circuit court reports one o three mr merrick if not improper i may remark that all those cases refer to a condition of things prior to the trial in which the party appears as a witness mr ingleshall the usual question is and the court determines that question whether a man shall be a witness or not the court how can the court determine that without passing upon the evidence in the case that is not the duty of the court it belongs to the jury 
Mr. Ingersoll, the prosecuting attorney has to pass upon that himself when he makes up his mind to put him upon the stand, and he only has the right to do that when he believes that no conviction can be had without that testimony. The court. Then it belongs to the prosecuting attorney. Mr. Ingersoll. I go further than that and say that the prosecuting attorney cannot do that without consultation with the court and without saying to the court that he believes no conviction can be had without that testimony. Mr. Merrick. May I be allowed to suggest a point which probably you would like to comment upon that all these cases refer to accomplices prior to the trial? My own opinion in reference to the case was that I would not put Rodell upon the stand until he had pleaded guilty. The court. I do not see the ground for the distinction between the cases. Undoubtedly, when an accomplice goes over to the government and offers his testimony, he does it always in the hope of pardon or immunity from prosecution. Mr. Ingersoll, that is all I want at present. I want it understood, if the court please, that I shall argue to the jury that at the time he made up his mind to go to the government, he understood that that meant immunity. The court. Oh, well, of course it did. Mr. Ingersoll. The next point is that the court has to take all his story or none. And I read from the second volume of Starkey on Evidence, side page 24. In judging of the credit due to the testimony of an accomplice, it seems to be a necessary principle that his testimony must be wholly received as that of a credible witness or wholly rejected. His evidence on points where he is confirmed by unimpeachable evidence is useless. The question is whether he is to be believed upon points where he received no confirmation. And of this the jury are to form their opinion from the nature of the testimony, his manner of delivering it, and the confirmation which it receives derived from other evidence which is unsuspected. If his character be established as a witness of truth, he is credible in matters where he is not corroborated. If, on the other hand, notwithstanding the corroboration upon particular points, doubts and suspicions still remain as to his credit, his whole testimony becomes useless. That is the point I want to make. If they are only to take his evidence where it is corroborated, they might as well have had the corroboration in the first place without him. Now, gentlemen, the evidence in my judgment shows, and shows beyond a doubt, and I believe it is now admitted that at the time Mr. Wardell made up his mind to go to their government, he expected that he was to have absolute immunity. You must judge his evidence in the light of that fact, in the light of that knowledge, in the light of what had been told him by his counsel. Now it is for you to say. You know something of this man. You have seen him from day to day. You saw his manner upon the stand. Why, they tell you that at one time he was overcome with emotion, and that that is evidence that he was telling the truth. It may be 
that there is left in that man some little spark of goodness still when he was swearing or endeavoring to swear away the liberty of the man who had been his friend maybe at that time the memory of the past did for a moment rush upon him he may have remembered the thousand acts of kindness he may have remembered the years of liberality he may have remembered the days that he had spent beneath that hospital roof he may have remembered the wife and children he may have remembered all these things and for just that moment he may have realized what a wretch he was in no other way can you account for his having emotion but i am about through with this gentlemen i shall not take up your time in the remainder of my speech by commenting upon mr rodell let us finish his testimony now let us put him out of sight let us put him in his coffin close the lid and nail it down first nail affidavit of june twenty eighteen eighty one private in second mail the letter of july fifth eighteen eighty two when he says that affidavit of eighteen eighty one was made by the persuasion of bosler drive it in third nail affidavit of july thirteenth eighteen eighty two where he swears that they were all perfectly innocent fourth nail the pencil memorandum drive it in fifth nail the tabular statement that gave thirty-three and one-third per cent to brady drive it in sixth nail his pretended letter to bosler telling about the advice of brady drive that in seventh nail the letter he pretends that dorsey on the thirteenth of may eighteen seventy nine wrote to bosler the copies being made by miss white drive that in wind his corpse up in the balance sheets from the red books made by donnelly then you want a plate for his coffin let us paste right in there the chico letter april third eighteen seventy eight now we want gravestones let us take the red books put one at his head and one at his feet and let his epitaph written upon the red book placed at his head be up to this moment i have been faithful to every trust my prayer to gabriel is when you pass over that grave don't blow let him sleep there are there never were there never will be twelve honest men who will deprive any citizen of his liberty upon the evidence of a man like rodell it never happened it never will and now gentlemen it becomes my duty to answer a few points made by the gentlemen who have addressed you on behalf of the government the first gentleman who addressed you was mr kerr and he had something to say considerable to say about what are known as the clendenning bonds they claim gentlemen first that an immense fraud was in view when these proposals i think they are proposals with accompanying bonds and oaths of sureties were sent to mr clendenning i wish to give you in the first place my explanation of this paper see if i understand it if you sent this paper to that officer or to that gentleman as a form to guide him in making up the bonds you would only fill up that portion of the bond 
in giving him a sample which you wanted him to fill up, and you would fill it up in order to show him exactly how he was to fill it up, and you would leave out that part which was already filled up in the bond. That is exactly what was done in this case. There was not one of those bonds that had an oath of the surety or the names of the sureties, because they were unknown. The names were unknown, and the amounts that the postmaster would certify to, and so all that was left in blank in the bond sent. But this being only a sample, it was sent to him so that he might know how to fill up the bonds that were sent. Consequently, that portion which was absolutely blank in the bond sent would be filled up as a guide to him, and that portion which is filled up in the bonds sent would be left blank in the guide, because he had nothing to do with that part. Now, that is all there is to it. What was left out as they claim? Why, they claim that the name of the bidder was left out and the amount of the bid. It makes no difference. That is not the slightest evidence of fraud, is it? What was the next thing? They were never used. Never. No bond included in that bundle was ever accepted by the government. No bonds were ever made, no contract ever based upon them, not a solitary cent taken from the government by those papers. Why, then, this secrecy? Because when a man is in this business, he does not want anybody else to know that he is bidding, in the first place, and in the second place, he does not want anybody to know the amount of the bid. If the amount of the bid is put in, then the persons going security will know it, and they may tell. The postmaster who approves the security will know it, and he may tell. The object of the secrecy is not to defraud the government, but to prevent other people finding the amount of the bid and then underbidding. That is the object, and it is the only object. And yet this little poor dried-up bond soaked in the water of suspicion, swells almost to bursting in the minds of the counsel for the prosecution. There's nothing of it. It was never worthy of mention in the first place. You will never think of it when you retire. It will never enter your minds. But if it does, remember that the object of the secrecy was simply as a precaution against other bidders and had nothing whatever to do with the government. This ends Chapter 4, Part 11 of 24.